You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Michael Kaufman. He's the Director of Russia Studies at the Center for Naval Analysis and a longtime friend of the Modern War Institute, serving for a long time as a scholar for us from the very beginning of the creation of the Institute. But more importantly to me, there's no one I turn to for more expertise on the Russian military, on Russia and Ukraine. So I'm really excited to have him on the show to talk all things Russia, Ukraine, and urban warfare. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. So thanks for coming on. I know you're extremely busy and I thought we'd start with really, if you don't mind, like Russian military 101. How big is the Russian military? Okay, sure. So I guess for basic knowledge of the Russian military, I'd I maybe offer a couple broad strokes, right? If you don't know anything about it at all, and you're just getting into this conversation. So first is that for the size of the country, uh, Russia actually doesn't have that large of a military. It probably had around 850 to 900,000 active service, but it has a fairly sizable component to its security forces. That is, there's also Rose Guardia, the National Guard, the uh, Border Guard and Coast Guard belong to the FSB. And there are many sort of paramilitary organizations outside of the regular military that receive substantial amounts of funding. Uh, the Rose Guardia, the National Guard isn't really meant for extraterritorial operations, although they've been used that way extensively in, in Ukraine. And you know, the active force, well, the military kind of uh, breaks down you know, into the, the land forces, the airspace forces, the Russian Navy, and there's sort of combat branches, and then there's combat arms. And the independent combat arms are the RVSN, the Strategic Rocket Forces, and the VDV, the Airborne. And Russia is probably the largest airborne in the world. I think it's around 45,000 or, or so strong. And oftentimes that's rolled into the ground force because the airborne of Russia has typically been used as elite infantry and maybe inserted initially via heliborne or other types of operations. But most of the time, the Russian airborne spends uh, fighting on the ground and, and has uh, armor components and what have you. So it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty heavy uh, mechanized force with its own types of air mobile infantry fighting vehicles and the armor support and light artillery and what have you. Okay. The Russian military technically has a sizable reserve, which is people who are in the books in terms of having had military experience, right? But in, in practice, Russia had only been getting about the business of building a viable ready reserve in recent years. One of the things they had been creating was called the bar system, which where they were trying to online pretty rapidly in the run-up to this war back in 2021. The Russian military has technically a lot of men with prior service experience available due to the history of conscription. And Russia still conducts drafts twice a year. The typical service age in Russian military has been around 18 to 27. Uh, the draft uh, gives you an option now to sign a contract for two years rather than doing one year of service. About a, maybe a third of the Russian military are actually conscripts. Most are contract service military, are considered enlisted professionals or officers because Russia doesn't have an NCO corps. It uses officers to do a lot of the jobs 
typically done by NCOs in the Western military. And so it's very officer top heavy because of that. And the typical conscript draft per year, I think, adds up to around 200, maybe 50, 260,000. And the officers, I think, maybe number 200,000 or so. And then the rest are typically enlisted professionals. But these are ballpark numbers. Okay, so if you just joined and and you're kind of listening to this, then then I think this kind of gives you a very broad brush overview with, without too much detail, but maybe it's not. No, that's amazing. Perfect, actually. Just getting an idea of the size and scope. But you know, since Ukraine kicked off, there are a lot of people you know watching the news. And can you talk a little bit about how the or the Russian land forces are organized, and such as like what is a BTG that we always hear about? Yeah, so a little bit about Russian land forces. You know, Russia does not have that large of uh, an army, although it's important to understand that the Russian military is very army dominated in terms of the general staff and the military leadership. And the army within itself is much more of an artillery army culturally. Because the Russian army is firepower heavy, has a huge number of artillery battalions and supporting artillery units relative to a typical Western force. A lot of people kind of imagine the Russian army as being an army that's heavily composed of armor units. But that's not really the case. It's much more of an artillery army with lots of tanks, if I, if I was to put it glibly. And the Russian military, in terms of what it can force generate, actually isn't that big because it's a tiered readiness force. So over the years, the Russian armed forces had been growing in size in terms of structure, converting brigades back to division, what have you. And they were buying lots of metal, which is kind of a traditional addiction in the Russian military. But they weren't increasing the size of the force. They're spending the money on capability, and they were spending the money on capacity and building up formations. And then down the line, they kind of hoped to maybe get more personnel and whatnot, but they weren't able to grow the force, right? So how are they scoring that circle? Well, it was creating a natural problem with readiness, and they kept decrementing readiness and dropping readiness down from 90 to 80 to 70%. And the Russian military was designed so that, you know, in the event of a big war, they could conduct mobilization, have some months to bring up readiness and fill out these formations. But in the event of a shorter nose or shorter nose, smaller conflict, then all the brigades and divisions could, in theory, generate something like two battalion tactical groups. And the battalion tactical group is essentially a task organized formation. It's typically based around a motor rifle or a tank battalion and the soldiers in the battalion tactical groups were going to be uh, contract servicemen that is enlisted professionals with greater experience than any typical conscript and they were supposed to have a habitual training relationship that is it's not just somebody coming to the unit and saying you you and you but more like the individuals slotted to be in a btg would have been training together during the year that's kind of part of that formation, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. How, how big is a BTG? Yeah, I've heard different numbers. So going into the way, I think a lot of us thought that BTGs were uh, somewhere in the range of seven to 900, but they would vary depending on the formation in terms of personnel size. But it turned out that as they were growing the BTGs, but not growing the force, they just cut the size of the BTG. And so the average, I think, was much more towards 600. And then many of the units could only generate maybe one full BTG, and then the second one would be something like 350 to 400 men. And that was for a number of reasons. 
The first is a lot of the formations that you know were essentially the force providers, they did not have an adequate mix of contract to conscript personnel. Because you can imagine that all the contract servicemen are given the technical specialty positions, right? Crew, support, key technical roles. And the question is, okay, well, who's driving the trucks for logistics? Oh, well, the division gave that job to the conscripts, right? Because that's not a job that requires tremendous amount of training. But then when you generate the BTG, you get back to that question of who's going to drive the trucks and provide the logistics for that BTG. And uh, conscripts were considered non-deployable for combat operations, especially outside of a declared war. And this created big issues in, in the actual mix, the ability of a division or a brigade to generate BTGs. And there's a second problem, readiness padding. All right, now all militaries do tend to pad readiness, but Russia's a particular case because anytime you have a tiered readiness system, where you say that your readiness can be as low as 70, 80%, creates a lot of opportunities for, um, let's say, portraying one force on Excel spreadsheets versus the one that really exists, right? And so there's a lot of readiness padding and types of gun decking that I think probably occurred. And so the Russian military had issues that they discovered on the first day of the war that they themselves didn't know about in terms of their readiness and force availability. So last question, last general question. I've seen you you and uh, Rob, I think, working on this. But you know, I'm, I'm an urban warfare guy. And, and while the BTG sounds like an artillery tank heavy, if you're going to close with and seize and hold terrain, you do need, especially if it's urban, infantry. So what's the general amount of infantry that a BTG might have? Yeah, that's the, that's the million dollar question. So it turned out, where did the Russian military find personnel savings when they cut the number of personnel per BTG? Well, they cut the infantry. They cut specifically the dismounted infantry. They cut squads down to maybe seven or so people per squad. And then when you decrement the actual readiness and force availability, you quickly saw that they were essentially going to war and there's nobody in the vehicles, right? There's enough men for a crew and maybe two dismounts in the vehicle tops. And that creates huge structural issues. That's one of those areas where uh, force design choices really propagate over what the force can do. And we often talk about force employment as being, at least from my point of view, uh, the biggest uh, factor in how military is going to perform, right? On paper, a military looks one way, but force employment is kind of king. However, one of the big things that drives force employment is force structure. You know, you can only work with what you got. And the Russian military ended up showing to the fight with almost no dismounted or very little dismounted infantry, right? And without infantry, what happens is first, well, it's pretty hard to do combined arms if you don't have infantry for armor and artillery to support. Uh, second, who's going to fight in cities and urban environments if you don't have infantry, right? You just can't just go in there with tanks and uh, infantry, pretty relatively lightly armored infantry fighting vehicles. Third, if you don't have infantry, you can't hold territory and you actually can't deploy effectively off of roads. So you're going to be pretty stuck to roads without infantry because there's nobody to screen armor or anything else if you're just going off road too. And there, there's nobody to hold a defensive line, let's say, off of the road, right? If you need, if you build a trench or if you build a defensive line out somewhere, you've got to have infantry holding it. So you have all these issues that end up propagating. And it's kind of the, the more, most self-evident issue that we saw in the, in the first uh, month or so of the war, of, of Russian problems with Russian force structure, force design choices. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I actually remember the Modern Wars 2 episode you did with John Amble, Man, that must have been November, December of last year, talking about Russian formations around Ukraine and, and what you were seeing on the formation types and the logistical 
assets and things like that. Let's get into Ukraine. So what was the deployable force that Russia marshaled and sent into Ukraine? Yeah, so that force probably had three main components, which were uh, the BTGs, the maneuver formations. Those ended up being a lot smaller than people like me had initially assessed because we didn't know right until the war started. And it turned out that, that might have been 120, 230 BTGs, uh, equivalent to maybe 90,000 end strength. This is just my personal guesstimate. They had a large force that were the first and second army corps of LDNR, the Luhansk, Donetsk, sort of People's Republics, these separate statelets that, that were de facto part of the Russian 8th Combined Arms Army and subordinate to other units, right? So they were essentially integrated into the Russian force as an extension of the Russian military. Right to the run-up to the war, they'd mobilized a lot of personnel. By mobilized, I mean gone around the streets and pulled all the men they could find between the ages of 18 and 55 and said, you need to come in and fill this formation. Right. And so they brought up their strength a bit, but not with very effective combat power. And it turns out that these LDNR mobilized personnel were a larger share of the Russian invasion force than, than I thought in, in the initial opening of the conflict. And then they had a lot of Rosguardia. And Rosguardia, the National Guard, not really, uh, really set up much more to stabilize an area and to do crowd control in a city, but not necessarily for any kind of offensive operations, extraterritorial operations. Or, or urban combat. And the Rosguardia also were not that well interoperable with the regular military. And, and as you know, I think we've discussed before, the biggest challenges the Russian military had going in was that they really didn't tell anybody until the last day. And even the Airborne, which had some pretty complex operations to execute, only found out about three days in advance of the war. So the military was unprepared, it was psychologically unprepared for the war. They were essentially told that they were going to go in and Ukrainians were going to surrender. And so they just drove in administratively. And none of them had prepared a lot of the actual battle plan, deconflicting with who's on the left, who's on the right, working out communications. And many units were thrust forward, essentially told, hey, here you go to your objective. And then as you get there, we'll follow on with further orders and, and what have you. So a lot of them sort of rushed in, driving down roads, wasn't very well coordinated. And... Beyond the fact that any military going to war, if it doesn't know it's going to war, then doesn't have time to resolve the inherent readiness issues or maintenance problems, all sorts of things that any large institutional military has. And the Russian military has them in spades, right? Let's let's say that. But a lot of people kind of use corruption as a hand-waving way to describe causality and problems in the Russian military. And I just want to be a bit dismissive of that. There are very clear reasons for why the Russian military had the problems it had. And many of them don't necessarily come down to corruption or, or anything like that. The Russian scheme really was to essentially win within a few days and to have a military operation that lasted no more than a couple of weeks. But the troops in general didn't really prepare for the invasion. They didn't know about it. So they go in and none of this is coordinated. None of this is well organized. None of it is well supported logistically. These things aren't sorted. There are huge maintenance problems. The Russian military has a tremendous amount of equipment, but very few people. And the equipment's breaking down left and right, right? And a lot of the investments they made were in having artillery and fires and strikes and various support elements, enablers, and there's very little infantry to actually go and fight for the cities. And they have big problems because logistics are being done by more conscripted components. And so different parts of the force cheat and send conscripts in at the beginning because they don't have any other people, right, to do the job. And the entire thing, you know, I've described as shambolic, but I don't think there's any other better word. It's, it's, uh, 
uh, it's an operation that'll be worth studying for some time into the future is something not to do. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the whole world surprised to include the Russian military on how that initial invasion went. So let's talk urban warfare. I have a general question. I somewhat know the answer to it, but you're the expert. Does Russia have urban warfare doctrine or did they prepare for urban warfare in their normal training cycles? Not really. So some Russian units, the units are considered to be elite, do train for urban warfare and do go to train uh, at urban warfare facilities. And I have seen that throughout Russian exercises. That is a very tiny slice of the force, okay? A very tiny slice. What I think is fair to say about the overall Russian military is, no, they generally do not train for operations in urban environments. They are a very uh, heavy mechanized force that expects to engage in maneuver warfare and particularly trained around concepts like maneuver defense. They're very firepower heavy force, right, that expects to advance to the concentration, effective use of firepower, and then exploit the decisive effects of firepower employment or use it to deny an opponent maneuver. And it is a force where the more elite units like the airborne are actually a very heavy mechanized force themselves and also don't do much in the way of uh, urban warfare training, only select components like Spetsnaz within the the airborne or select uh, airborne brigades conduct that training. On top of that, here's the truth. I think it's very clear that the base level of Russian training for the average soldier was quite lower in quality than anticipated, including by folks like myself. If you were to ask me what's one of the you know, biggest things that I feel I got wrong in the round to the war is assumptions about level of training and improvement in the quality of training of the individual soldier and training at that sort of company to battalion level over the last 10 years. And what I think, what I think at least I discover is that the Russian elite infantry isn't all that elite. It's much more regular, and the Russian regular units were pretty bad in terms of level of training. But more importantly, that force wasn't used at all effectively. It was used in a way that played to none of its strength and maximized its weaknesses. The Russian airborne is not a force that's designed to be chucked into cities, nor are Russian Spetsnaz reconnaissance units who were also thrown in and used as almost kind of any kind of light like infantry. And uh, Russia doesn't have much, that much in the way of special forces. It does have KSO, and those were used in the very, very beginning alongside select elements of the airborne in uh, the heliborne operation to seize Gosenal. But those, I think those units were expended fairly quickly early on in some of the toughest fighting outside of Kiev. So let's get into that. How did the cities... In this ideal of major warfare that many people hold in their mind, their ideals about maneuver warfare, right? Maneuvering to a position of advantage and outflanking your enemy. How did cities prove decisive in the beginning? And we can really start chronologically, but in the beginning, how did cities prove decisive in some of these key opening battles? Sure. So, yeah, it's interesting that I think some of the early assumptions about the center of gravity that the Russian military was going to go for in, was uh, more the Donbass and the concentration of Ukrainian forces there. But instead, the the initial center of gravity was trying to take the capital in a decapitation attack and very quickly getting units there, building an air bridge at a seized air base and trying to get into the city. And, and the Russian 
kind of theory of success was catching Ukrainians cold, right? Just rapidly inserting airborne and trying to push them into Kiev to, to force Zelensky to flee or to surrender and what have you, right? And early on, as Russian units kind of raced down roads and these thunder runs they were trying to do, the main place they ran into problems right at the beginning was major cities, especially cities where they faced resistance. And there were a whole set of cities that the Russian military was hoping to seize, not just to, you know, to, to basically take the area, but more significantly because those cities had railroads running through them and the railroads had, you know, junctions and they were essential for sustainment of logistics, which the Russian military needed to press forward. And so they were blocked fairly quickly uh, at Chernyiv, uh, east of the Dnieper River. They had trouble taking Sumy, even though they were able to encircle the city for a while. They couldn't make any headway to Kharkiv at all. Kharkiv is the second largest city in Ukraine outside of Kiev. In the south, they were essentially blocked outside of Mykolaiv and spent a long time trying to figure out how to get around Mykolaiv to get across the river towards Odessa in a completely fruitless series of advances uh, that took them several weeks and essentially they were beaten back there and as they advanced from the south to mariupol they were able to encircle mariupol but the fighting for mariupol tied down the russian military and uh the ldnr units were fighting in the city for months i mean months and, and it ultimately took them uh they they took it in some ways in the way that they took grozny right the, the city is essentially destroyed in the process and Outside of Kiev, well, you know the story very well. You, you, like, I know you, you've actually rather done work. So Ukrainians were able to stop the initial Russian advance and ability of Russian military to seize, take control of Gustamel Air Base and reinforce it. They also opened up the uh, water locks to flood three main rivers. And more importantly, as the Russian military got stuck being funneled into Busha and Irpin, First, they kind of were met by TDF and various Ukrainian volunteers, but then the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian special forces really got into gear and were meeting them in an urban environment that was highly favorable to them, very unfavorable to the Russian military. Russian military didn't have the forces, couldn't actually encircle the city. And if you're going to seize a city, you typically have to encircle it to cut the ground lines of communications, right? I'm not an urban warfare expert at all, but stop me if I'm wrong on this one. No, no, go ahead. Generally, if the city can reinforce and resupply, you have problems. Absolutely. So and they couldn't get around Kiev at all to cut the ground lines of communication to the city. They were maybe able to do about 30% of, of the job. Kiev itself is massive. It's a very large city sprawling on two sides of a river. And the Russian military, they tried initially in the first couple of days to see if they could push into the city, do reconnaissance and force. They were unsuccessful. And then they were basically stuck. They were stuck on the outskirts and couldn't make much headway after that. So the urban environment proved decisive to foiling the initial kind of Russian plan to conduct regime change. And then later on, the Russian military got stuck because cities controlled key ground lines of communication and they struggled getting around them. And the cities essentially ended up being blocking points. And then eventually, as you know, by by end of March, Russian uh, military largely conceded defeat in this first campaign, had to withdraw, reconstitute, and then refocus on trying to take the Donbass and then holding everything everything else that they could in the south and around Kharkiv. And that kind of, it's a bit of a fast forward a little bit to today. But, you know, major urban battles then follow. Beyond Mariupol, we have the battle for Severodonetsk and uh, Sushansk. And, and so urban fighting continues to be probably one of the biggest dynamics of this conflict. And one of the most interesting things I'd say is that when the Russian military shifted the focus to Donbass, a lot of folks are saying, well, there's going to be very different 
because there aren't these cities and it's going to be tank country. And I was very puzzled by this because, first of all, it's not tank country. It's actually a pretty, pretty urbanized, complex terrain with rivers and cities and towns nonetheless. Second, I think maybe people imagine that from uh, a bit from the Eastern Front of World War II. And uh, the truth is that Ukraine is pretty variegated in terms of terrain. And, and there are parts of Ukraine that are very open and flat, but other parts are, are not. There's, it's pretty urbanized. And second, a lot of folks forget that uh, the area has become much more urbanized since World War II, and there's far more people in Europe now. That's kind of a very good point. But just to say that if your like mental reference point is World War II, you have to remember that there's much more urban terrain in Europe since World War II. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's not. I don't think it's a glib point at all. I mean, I I personally say all roads lead to urban. You know, let let's let's analyze this based on strategic objectives. I I agree with you. First objective: regime change, decapitation, political power. You got to take Kiev. All right, you lost that one. Now you're moving on. I want to take all the Donbass. Well. That means I got to move forward and seize and hold the urban areas in the Donbass, which is what we've seen, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you say you want to take the Donbass, what are the key cities where the ground lines of communication intersect? I mean, there's urban areas you would need to control in order to advance your logistics and take control of that area. Well, if you want Luhansk, you need Severodonetsk, If you want Donbass, in the north, you have to take Slavyansk-Kramatorsk, right? Yep. To get to them from the eastern side, you have to bypass the Bakhmut Severus defensive line that Russia has been struggling on for the past month. In the south, they have to push out Donetsk and try to get to Pokrovsk and the other major towns in the more southern part of the Donbass, where a lot of roads intersect in order to take the region. There's no other way, right? And you see that a lot of defensive lines are built as fortification points and lines largely around cities and favorable terrain. So you're constantly interacting with with urban environments. You're not seeing much in the way of open field battles between tanks. It's probably the least visible occurrence in this war has been tank on tank combat. Yeah. And most of the casualties, most of the fighting war is actually done by artillery and infantry with anti-tank guided missiles slowing down advancing formations, then concentrating artillery fire and artillery duels and like. But a lot of the fighting has actually made this more of an artillery war. And then inside urban environments, it's been a very vicious, fairly close quarters of fight between infantry, supported by artillery on both sides, you know, leveling cities and, and, and destroying and trying to press, forcibly press with sustained artillery fire, the defending force out of the urban terrain. 100%. So you covered so much, and I wish I had. We need another hour to cover some of the, these urban battles that you mentioned that 100% agree with all of them. Each one was a little different. So there's some fallacies, I think, that are out there that I think Ukraine does help. One, don't take too many lessons, right? The tank is still a viable mobile protected platform. You know, yeah, drones are an issue. Like there's so much that people are taking from the war in Ukraine, but they're taking them from different moments, different battles, different units, different situations. The context always matters. Back in the beginning, and you and I have talked about it after our visit, and, and, and I can't wait to you know, tease out even more of these lessons. If you understand what the if the main objective the decisive operation was the capture of kiev and, and really not even the city that just a political element right the regime change this ideal of a joint forcible entry i almost think of it falls into one of mcmaster's fallacies about special operations can get it done for you so it's an easy button push the special operations button so how did hostamel go down in your eyes uh okay 
So here's how I think it went down. I just want to be upfront. There's tons we don't know about this war yet, and certainly I don't, right? And I always give people this caveat, like, hey, we're still debating what happened in World War I, so please be patient and understand that we're going to be revising our understanding of what's happened in this war right now, six months in, many times over. So with that up front, my impression of the, of the opening Russian move was, first of all, it was a very, very classic Russian operation. Whether you follow Operation Danube 1968 seizure of Czechoslovakia or Storm 333 seizure of sort of regime change in Afghanistan, not an unusual scheme for the Russian military. Typically, the airborne will try or perhaps oversell its ability, try to take an air base, build an air bridge, rapidly reinforce, and then have ground forces connect with them and get into the city, the capital, and try to try to attempt to conduct regime change. The Russian airborne conducted a highly risky airborne insertion at the beginning. I think air defense was actually first, uh, much stronger than the Russian military expected because they expected their opening salvo to substantially attrition air defense, but most of those air defense units weren't there where the Russians thought they were going to hit them. Right. Second, because Russian ground forces were only told the day before what their plan was, guess what? It turned out they were not prepared in a position to get to the Tegosimel in time to reinforce the Russian unit. The Russian unit went in, looked about a battalion strong, which strikes me as a gross underestimation of the kind of force you would need to hold that size of an airbase. I think actually Ukrainians didn't have that much to defend, but Ukrainian volunteers ran in early, grabbed N-laws, and blocked the Russian advance down key roads at the opening, the very opening of the war. Yeah, I mean, because the the joint forcible entry in some sense worked. They got what twenty helicopters of VDV in there. Yeah, no, they did. They, I mean, probably uh, probably more like thirty. Yeah, they altogether they did get something like a battalion size element in there, and they got special forces in there along with them. But it was a fairly small force to try to hold to try to hold that air base. Yeah, for me, it was how long did you want them to hold too? So if we look at you're trying to take a lesson from this, right? So what are you going to stick in there? Are you going to throw an airborne, let's say a Ranger Regiment Battalion Plus, like a Task Force Ranger Regiment? Like, yeah, you can get them on the ground. Good, you you did it. How long do you want them to hold against what? Well, yeah, that's the question. Be like, John, you know this old joke. What do you call an airborne unit that's not been reinforced in over three days? A speed bump. POWs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so this is the thing that I, when I try to tell people about the Battle of Kiev is like, oh, look, okay, there's Hasmel happening. But then you do have two massive, if not three, massive ground force penetrations happening. And they get there. They just get there probably, you know, 10 hours late. Yeah. So cars on the table, actually, I think the best performing Russian force component this entire war has been the naval infantry, which is a pretty small element of the force, a bit over 10,000 strong. And a tank unit from a Russian naval infantry brigade actually did break through to the air base early on. But yes, they got there too late. The troops occupying the airbase were essentially run off, and it gave the Ukrainians a lot of time to help organize defense and pull it together, right? To start actually prepping the battle space for an urban fight. And, you know, I think the Russian plan to try to get into Kiev quickly before Ukrainian defenses were substantially mobilized or organized was basically done by the third day of this war. And even though they, they ultimately retained, you know, for a while, Gustav was like a no man's land, but then they retained control of it. 
it was for naught because by that point it was too late for the Russian plan to have any chance of success, whatever chance he even gave it at the outset of, of working. And most of it was premised on, I think, probably three things. First, catching Ukrainian forces cold, the assumption that they wouldn't have anybody uh, deployed to either contest the Russian advance from Belarus or to effectively contest control of that air base on the first day. Second, you know, they clearly had FSB, Intel operators and saboteurs prepared in the city. Like they had another leg of this that was supposed to drop that they feel they organized and funded that didn't show up or didn't show up in the way they expected. But there was a whole intelligence operation as a counterpart to this that clearly failed. And it was probably just as big a failure as the failure of the military operation in the early days. And there were, if you saw, remember the early footage, there were strange fights of what looked like yes. what looked like Russians in Ukrainian uniforms with Ukrainian equipment trying to penetrate the city. Oh, this yeah. is very, you know, Afghanistan Storm Triple Three style, sort of like Russian uh, Alpha Guard dressing up, I think, in, in Afghan Spetsnaz uniform, that kind of operation. And at least my take on it was there was another part of this that failed that I, I actually don't know nearly as much about, but I hope to learn more about over time. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and as we've walked through, you know, me and Liam Collins that went there, you know, there's so many aspects of this, this massive battle that little bit is, was was just straight blind luck from the Ukrainians. I will say that that the stuff wasn't in position to be bombed, that the terrain was conducive to breaking apart these formations and like just a long list of this is why that happened. And like you you pointed out to us if if the first guard division had not held at Cherniv, then this the battle of Kiev would have went a totally different direction. Had Russian forces been able to penetrate from other angles besides this main effort assigned the mission, hadn't been able to break through through any of the other city battles happening. You know, the first three couple of weeks of this could have gone a drastically different way. Yeah. It's important to clarify, I think, for folks listening, how much of this was truly contingent, right? And how much hinges on individual actions of unit commanders or political leaders in the early phase of a war in particular. Because, yeah, you have... Ukraine's first tank brigade in Chernihiv basically holding off the entire central military district. Those forces struggled to get around Chernihiv. You have choices made by individual unit commanders that proved decisive early on. You have Zelensky's decision to stay. I mean, what if he had decided to flee? That, that was pretty pretty significant. Oh, yeah. A lot of people in Ukraine, cogs in Ukraine, in the first couple of days really thought the government was going to fall. I just want to be clear. It is only now, in retrospect, that I detect a sense of tremendous analytical and political bravado about how this all worked out. But I just want to be clear, despite the the somewhat absurd nature of the Russian scheme and their assumptions that they could just overthrow the government of Ukraine and quickly seize the country without much resistance, this could have gone differently in the early days. It could have played out differently. And we are very fortunate to be living in a timeline, right, where the Russian plan was so shambolic and we grossly underestimated the Ukrainian capacity to effectively resist and things worked out the way they did. But this was not, I'll put this I don't think that this outcome was necessarily as overdetermined as other people feel reading the commentary out there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to run out of time. There's so many of these battles I want to hit because I think each one of them teaches a different urban warfare lesson, right? I personally think that the Battle of Kiev was a, you know, it wasn't a house to house, room to room, although there's some of that happening like in Erpin. It wasn't that when people think about urban warfare, it, it was a failure in, in a large scale combat operation against a city 
and the planning variables and what you thought would work, what wouldn't, intelligence, all of that. But let's talk about another urban battle, which I think it is will be a part of my study for a while, right? After I write the what I can of, of the Battle of Kiev, I want to then pivot to the Battle of Mariupol. So what's your take on the importance of Mariupol as a assigned military objective? And then what the heck happened? Like th- this essential Ukrainian Alamo, arguably holding down a very massive Russian force. So first, I think that actually Russian military going from Mariupol early on was a big mistake. And it it surprised me because I thought that the, that the focus of their strategy would have been to try to conduct a large-scale involvement of Ukrainian forces in the Donbass and have a secondary pincer to Kiev to try to fix Ukrainian forces on defending the city, right? Thereby splintering the Ukrainian military's ability to reinforce. But instead, they focused on Kiev. And what they'd done was then try to pursue kind of all the political objectives at the same time, you know, go for Mariupol, go for Nikolaev and Odessa, try to get around Kharkiv. And it was a sort of military strategy that was diffused, concentrated forces nowhere, had three different fronts with maybe six or seven plus different uh, operational axes of advance. But they get to Mariupol, they cut the city off fairly early on in the, in the war, but they don't actually have the forces to conduct a proper siege, right? Because in the early couple of weeks, they're completely spread out. They're everywhere on the map, and they can't sustain that kind of effort. Nobody can because it's pretty irrational force employment. And the battlefield then shrinks after March as they reconstitute and focus on a series of battles, and they redeploy to the Donbass. A lot of the fighting for the city looked like it was being done by forces from DNR, backed by 58th Army troops from the Southern Military District, and I think some Russian probably naval infantry units, right? And what I saw in it was, was kind of interesting. The Russian military did not have actually enough forces for the city that size. Mariupol is a pretty large city as a port city. In terms of the forces that they had tied down, it was very clear that the problems they had at the beginning of the war really came to haunt them in Mariupol. First, not much infantry, and a lot of what they had they lost in the first three weeks of the war. Second, overly dependent on mobilized personnel from LDNR, which are not quality forces or, or very well trained at all. Third, they then got stuck with a very low force density spread out across this large battlefield. And Mariupol was essentially tying them down. It was tying them down. And that's part of the reason why I think you saw them completely stall out in Zaporizhia and not advance any further than they had in the first, let's say, about three weeks of the war. And just try to hold that line because they had no more troops available for fighting the Donbass until they were able to resolve the battle for Mariupol. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I look, look, you know, I teach urban warfare classes and I think, you know, the Battle of Kiev gives me something I can teach about planning for a penetration, right? You're trying to penetrate the city. In Mariupol, I think it's, it's going to be a great case study on, okay, you want to you clear a city and then call it yours. All right. Now you're going to, there will be some clearing that has to happen to do that. And that requires combined arms formations, not just infantry, but we saw in Mariupol, you see a lot of your tanks by itself getting taken out. Like that's what happens when you leave a tank by itself. You see infantry like hugging behind a building. You, you see urban snipers. You see it all really this list of what people hold in their mind, but it's a very, it's one of the possible mission sets you could give a military in urban warfare. Yeah. Let me comment a bit, just sort of my impressions of it. First, you know, kind of w- watching that battle, that's one area where Russia could actually get to employ air power because 
there, there wasn't uh, effective uh, air defense available to Ukrainian forces. And there actually wasn't that much the Russian air power could add except indiscriminate destruction. One area you know that Western forces focus on is air power and the utility of air power and its employment in combined arms operations. But air power can get substantially neutered in its effectiveness very quickly in a heavy urban setting. And opposing forces can always close with your forces to make the use of air power or artillery firepower much less effective, right? Because once they close the ground with your own troops, you now have some dilemmas that you're dealing with. We call that hugging, really, from from Chechnya. I mean, the term, one of the first points up is called hugging the other force. Yeah, that's what Chechens did in 99-2000, in particular to Russian troops. So let's get beyond hugging. Let me talk a little bit of force deployment, just my impressions. First, you know, armor is still incredibly effective when it's properly employed. It is supported by infantry. It, you know, it has air defense to defend it from air attack where it's quite vulnerable. A tank, whatever you may think of it as a more expensive platform or a harder to sustain platform, a tank from my point of view still has probably the best combination of firepower protection maneuver. And on a battlefield where so many units have various types of anti-tank weapons, yeah, the last thing you want to do is get out of a tank and get into a lighter-skinned vehicle that's much more likely to be killed by any of those anti-tank munitions. Whereas in Mariupol, I literally saw tanks take four to five hits from anti-tank weapons from different sides and angles before going down, right? You also see the incredible effectiveness of upgun vehicles, APCs with 30 millimeters. I mean, boy, if you watch some of the footage from Mariupol on both sides... You do not want to be on the on the wrong end of a 30 millimeter auto cannon because those seem to be quite effective at providing infantry support in urban environment. And perhaps this is kind of anecdotal, I'll concede. Perhaps in many cases more fear than a tank showing up in that battlefield. Don't give the striker, the US military striker community putting 30 millimeter cannons on their guns. Don't give them a, a high five. Let's stick with Bradley 25 millimeter. That's gonna it's gonna ruin your day every time. I'm just saying. I, I'm not preferential between those. All I'm saying is that don't don't discount the auto cannon. It doesn't matter in what caliber, but both sides were using the 30s pretty effectively. Yeah, it's concrete penetration, right? You're not going to hide behind a, that wall with a 30 millimeter. You can hide behind it from AK-47 and most munitions, but it's it's concrete penetration. That's gonna that's gonna reach out and touch some people. Yeah, and the close range. It's going to get through most armor, too. And if it catches a tank at, a, at any angle other than the front, it's probably going to get through that as well. You know, so it's very effective at the ranges you're using it at in that environment. And you don't need to have the world's greatest optics to employ it at that range either. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, I'm running out of time, but I, I have concerns about the lessons being pulled from Ukraine. And I think there are huge ones about your ideals, your concepts, your maintenance. All of it's going to face the reality of urban areas. You're going to have to pass through them. You're going to have to secure them. You name it. You've talked about before about be careful about where you're getting your information or, or rushing to. There's a lot more fighting to be had in Ukraine. There's a lot more urban fighting, in my opinion, to be had. What are your concerns about what's going on today? Uh, if you're talking about the battlefield, it's one thing. If you're talking about lessons learned or what we should learn, you know, I'll give you my short take on that. First is be very careful because the early takes are usually wrong or best based on very incomplete information. Second, there's really at least two very distinct campaigns to this war. The initial Russian attempt in Ukraine and then the subsequent conflict really starting more in April 
that played out somewhat differently as a war of attrition, but also a war that's uh, a conflict that's seen a lot of urban fighting. And we'll see more urban fighting as we progress because you still see the Russian military trying to advance and take towns in southern Donbass. And they still have their sights set on Slavansk Kramatorsk, for example. The Ukrainian military has its own objectives and, and cities they might want to take in a counterattack. I would say on lessons in general, this is very much a war worth following and studying. But to kind of paraphrase a colleague of mine, Dick Johnson, a great historian, be very careful not to take the lesson from this war that, you know, the Russians did poorly because they're not like us and the Ukrainians did well because they are like us. And that the lessons from this war just validate the things we've chosen to do. That's not the case really at all. There's a lot here to study because a lot of the things that have happened to the Russian military in this war from the standpoint of doctrine training, but also very significantly big force structure choices on force design, they can happen to us. Okay. There are a lot of challenges that the Russian military is dealing in this war that are challenges that the U.S. military might deal with. Or same thing on the, on the other side, the Ukrainian military is dealing with that is worth following. Don't oversubscribe the lesson that, you know, the Russian military is doing bad because they don't have an NCO core. The Ukrainian military is doing well because they do have one. Not, none of that, that's not really true necessarily in either case. So be careful with kind of facile hand-waving explanations and just appreciate both the specificity of the context of this war, but also what I think is the immense utility of this conflict in offering at least us some lessons as a community yeah, both about the character of modern warfare, but also about the challenges that, you know, as a defense establishment that we might face whenever dealing with a fairly capable, motivated opponent that has some parity of capability. I hope this kind of makes sense. I tried to very much broad stroke it, right? But I'm very wary we walk away from this and we basically say, yeah, Russians did poorly because they're bad. Not too much to learn here. And uh, let's move on to focusing on the fights that we want to do and we want to train for. No, it makes 100% sense. I 100% agree. And that's what militaries do, right? They don't want to change the direction they're headed. Like, oh, no, nothing in Russia. Yeah, they're just bad. That's a bad military. We're going to keep driving on with our modernization strategies and artificial intelligence, robotics. Of course, there's greatness in that. But there's also, you do have to listen to the character of warfare. And it isn't what some people are saying that, oh, no, we're just keep on driving. There No lessons there. Yeah, absolutely. And look, one thing we can say for certain, right? The United States will run into a fight eventually where an opponent has access to and will retreat to urban terrain. Okay, I think that's a safe future to predict. And if you look at this particular context, right, when you have both sides with fairly capable modern weapons, with fairly capable and commercially available means of ISR and means of detection, with access to a tremendous amount of artillery, with basically an ability to fight in such a way that even if there was kind of you know, the U.S. Air Force to, to solve a lot of your air power problems it would be far less effective in some of these contexts. But more importantly, what this war shows is that you shouldn't have to depend on it because you may not have the luxury of going into a war where the U.S. Air Force has spent three months establishing air superiority before the first ground troops go in. You know, like that assumption that the conflict can always play out that way is, from my point of view, very flawed. And you have to ask yourself, what, is, what does the situation look like if you don't have uh, assumptions on air superiority or battlefield dominance in certain parts of the terrain? Yeah, 100%. Those ideals that you're going to control all that from man pads to your deep fires. Well, Mike, this has been an amazing conversation. 
I'm going to keep following what you do. And I hope everybody else that listens to this does as well. Hey, thanks a lot uh, for having me on the podcast. It's been uh, it's been a great time too. And and as you know, I, I always love MWI. I very much enjoyed my fellowship there and give my best to the colleagues and, and the current crop of fellows that you have. I will. And, and you're always a member of the family. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.